Okay. Yep. All right. Here we go. Three, two, one, zero. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. This is Jim Marty reporting from beautiful Playa de Karma, Mexico, where I'm on vacation. Took a little break from the uh, eating and drinking and beach volleyball to uh, do the Deadhead Cannabis Show here with Larry. Larry, how are things up in Chicago? Well, Jim, I can assure you they're not quite as nice as they are down where you are. Uh, and there was no beach volleyball or anything like that going on. Um, but uh, it is sunny here, so we'll take what we can get, and, and, and uh, uh, we're very happy about that. But that's all good. So, well, good for you for being able to get away for a few days. Um, to all of our listeners, uh, and you, Jim, as well, happy, healthy New Year to everyone, even though um, I don't know if this is our first show that's airing this uh, calendar year. It's the first one we're taping this calendar year. Um, so it is uh, uh, good to have survived another New Year's Eve. Um, were you down in Mexico for that, Jim, or did you travel down afterwards? Uh, we've been here um, after New Year's. We came down after New Year's for uh, okay. eight days. I had a very um, busy and interesting New Year's where I um, yeah. counted inventory at uh, 11 different oh. cannabis companies. Uh, one of our clients flew us up, flew me up to Aspen from Denver, a whopping uh, 25 minutes in the air, and uh, <laughs> counted many marijuana plants and pounds and pounds of uh, a bag cannabis and products. So uh, yeah, year ends a busy time of year for CPAs in the cannabis industry because um, audited financial statements under generally accepted accounting principles are becoming more and more common. And if you are going to have an audited financial statement, the auditor, myself in this case, are um, required to observe the inventory. So that's how I spent New Year's, um, both in Aspen and Denver. Uh, Did you make it back to the barn for New Year's Eve? Um, we had a nice New Year's Eve, but I had to be at a cannabis shop in Denver at 7 a.m. on January 1st. Ooh. So we we went with the uh, Mountain Time 10 p.m. New Year's and watched a little bit of the celebration. But, sure. Um, yeah, I'm happy to say, um, you know, the – Inventory tracking system in Colorado, the state-approved system that our MED, Marijuana Enforcement Division, uses is called Metric, and it is very accurate. It's very accurate. It, it tracks it all the way from clone through the cultivation process, through drying and harvesting, and then the transfer from cultivation to retail is tracked very carefully. I, you know, like I said, I counted hundreds and hundreds of pounds, and bags of seven, 800 joints and uh, very, very few variances. In fact, the variances was interesting enough were mostly over a few grams rather than under. And the reason for that is the cultivator will um, maybe over a few grams or 10 grams allowing for water loss, um, but he'll log it in the metric system as a pound. And then it gets weighed at the dispensary and it comes in a few grams over 452. So, uh, yeah, I was very impressed with the accuracy and the way that system works. And, uh, of course, what the Met is interested in is several things, uh, that uh, tracking the product so it doesn't go out of state or go to minors, uh, tracking it so that the state of Colorado collects its proper taxes. And, of course, if there's a product that's causing an illness, they want to be able to track it and recall it. So I had a very interesting New Year's. And... Um, that's what I was doing. As soon as I got done with that, I got to get on a, a plane at DIA and head 
I, we hightailed it down to Mexico. <laughs> nice. Well, good. That's a great place to be. Uh, very enjoyable. Nice to get away. And, uh, um, you know, it's, if you have to socially distance, that's a good place to have to do it. So, uh, so good for you. That's all very good and exciting. Yeah, we uh, had a very uh, calm and mild uh, New Year's Eve up here. Uh, it was chilly. There wasn't a whole lot to do. So uh, we stayed inside and watched uh, the fish dinner in a movie, which was the 95 New Year's show uh, and their big famous chess match with the audience, which I'm not much of a chess guy, but they certainly seem to be into it. So that was fun. Um, and then right at midnight, uh, I, I went to my standard, which is the uh, – multi-CD set uh, closing of Winterland, the uh, December 31st, 1978 show when they closed down Winterland. Um, you know, and that's like a four-hour show uh, that, you know, to put it in perspective now, you know, when we used to see the New Year's shows, they would start the first set at 10, a, 10 p.m. and be over by 2. This show started at midnight uh, when they did it originally, and they played till sometime around 4 in the morning. And although I didn't play the entire show and stay up until 4 in the morning, all you really need is that Sugar Mag, Scarlet Fire, uh, uh, really right at midnight, I think is a great way to, uh, to launch the new year. It's a lot of fun. And, uh, the very small crowd that we had over here, uh, enjoyed it very much and, uh, always fun to rock in, uh, the new year with the boys. Um, some quick, uh, local news before we get to our guest today, uh, Jim, uh, first of all, I know we've been talking about sales and we've been looking, uh, you were uh, showing us the numbers from Colorado. Well, the numbers are in on Illinois. And Illinois' total combined marijuana sales, so both medical and adult use in 2020, is going to break a billion dollars. And, uh, you know, for us, that's just absolutely amazing. And again, you know, understanding that the entire market right now is controlled by the medical people. You know, they obviously have all the medical licenses, and they're the only ones that have active adult use licenses while we wait for the state to award any of its other licenses. But um, that's just an amazing amount of money. And uh, for those guys who went medical and really had to, uh, you know, make it through the rough, tough times, uh, this is a good place to have come out on the back end and uh, financially going to be uh, very well worth it for them. That is good news. Glad to hear it. Uh, yeah, we have great hopes for 2021 <laughs> to um, be a great year for the cannabis industry. Um, I think we'll be approaching $50 billion in legal cannabis sales uh, with about the same amount of still illicit market sales going on. So the trend is in the right direction. Uh, the companies are getting very large. We're working with much larger companies now who are coming into Colorado and acquiring the mom and pops that have been in business for 10 years. Um, and they're burnt out. And they're ready to move on. So um, these large companies are raising seven, eight, ten million million, $10 and then coming in and buying four and five you know, cannabis shops. And then the price in Colorado is still around one times revenue. So a million dollar a year dispensary will sell for about a million dollars. However, you'll be interested in this and I won't mention any names. Mm -hmm. uh, one of our Illinois clients just sold for two and a half times sales. Yeah, we've been hearing really good things over here in terms of sales. And, and look, with a market like this right now, who wouldn't you know be willing to pay top dollar to get into it? Because it's only going to go up. Uh, it's going in a great direction. And you know, if we want to talk about the long-term uh, prospects for legal marijuana, 
Um, you know, we have to stop and take notice, uh, you know, to what happened to the Georgia election yesterday uh, and to all of our listeners. We're, we're very, very, very political on this show as it relates to marijuana and not too political as to anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we celebrate uh, uh, the victory of two Democrats in Georgia, uh, it's not so much a um, uh, philosophical statement of overall uh, political philosophy, but it is a recognition that um, – our good friend Mitch McConnell was never too anxious to bring uh, those cannabis measures that had been passed by the House to the floor of the Senate for a vote. And uh, the hope is now that Chuck Schumer or Kamala Harris or whoever gets to do it uh, will at least let those uh, bills come forward and be heard. Whether or not there'll be enough votes uh, remains to be seen. Um, but this could be the ticket towards, you know, finally moving the industry uh, towards a more legal uh, 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 basis. So, uh, it, although, uh, you know, time will tell, um, had, uh, either one of the Democrats lost and McConnell retained control of the Senate, uh, I think the conversation right now would have been the unlikelihood of seeing any of those bills ever make it to the floor. Um, you know, so for that reason, uh, I applaud the victory in Georgia and look forward to being, uh, you know, some sort of a, uh, an honest debate on the floor of the Senate and, and really let this issue be voiced once and for all. Yes, and I won't belabor the point that I've made on past shows that um, be careful what you wish for. Uh, it may not uh, work out uh, as well for our existing clients as uh, you would think that legalization would do for them. But again, we'll see what happens. Now, let's move on. Uh, we have a great guest today. Our guest today is Ryan Douglas. Uh, he has uh, his own group called Ryan Douglas Cultivation. Uh, Ryan has been a uh, commercial marijuana grower for some time. Uh, Ryan, welcome to our show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, where you're from, and how you got into the marijuana game. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Absolutely. I'm a uh, commercial cannabis consultant. So I basically specialize in helping new cannabis companies uh, launch their cultivation site rapidly. So they come to market quickly and they spend less money getting there. So I've spent the last four or five years consulting on projects in Canada, the US, Puerto Rico, and Colombia, South America. And prior to becoming a consultant, I directed cultivation for Canopy Growth Corporation. So they're one of the biggest players in the cannabis scene. And I was hired back in 2013 to help them launch their cultivation program. But prior to even touching cannabis on a commercial scale, my background in training is in traditional horticulture. So for 15 years, I was a a commercial greenhouse grower grower of ornamental and edible crops. I worked across the U.S. in places like um, Mississippi, New Mexico, uh, uh, Maine, and Massachusetts. And that was really my my background in training and in in retrospect, was probably the best way to prepare me for commercial plant production in the legal cannabis space. And and what uh, what triggered your move over into the legal cannabis space? Well, um, I've always been a, a cannabis consumer, um, but yes, just fair enough. As are we. So you know, you're among a like company here. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, but given the illegality of the situation, I was just concerned about being a commercial grower, uh, given the illegality of cannabis across the country. So I kind of um, 
kept my nose clean in a sense and, and instead chose to grow flowers and vegetables for 15 years. But as states slowly began to decriminalize and legalize commercial cannabis cultivation, naturally I knew that's where I wanted to be. And it worked out well because uh, a lot of the concepts and techniques used for growing uh, flowers or vegetables commercially uh, transfer directly to cannabis production. So it was really the best kind of training I could have asked for. What was the biggest uh, single challenge for you in going from plants and, and, and vegetables and more traditional greenhouse growing to uh, cannabis cultivation? Oh, that's a great question. Probably the, the biggest challenge was not being able to use some of the pest control products that we used as uh, flower growers. So, you know, no one plans on eating a poinsettia plant at Christmas time. So part of the production schedule involves a number of different um, pest control products to either keep insects or disease in check. And so now when we look at cannabis, I mean, we're really growing a medicine and just the structure of the flower makes it almost impossible to wash the flower before it's consumed. So we have to be really careful about what products we use to protect the plant in certain growing environments. And so that really forced me to kind of think outside of the box in terms of how am I going to protect this crop from uh, the diseases or insects that naturally would attack any monoculture or commercially grown crop. And then other than that, I imagine it's just uh, making sure you're up to speed on all the uh, federal and state rules with respect to uh, which what licensing in a particular state and what they can and cannot do and that kind of stuff and just familiarizing yourself with all of that. Yeah, and that's what keeps it interesting because when you work with clients or commercial growers in different states and different countries because launching a cultivation site or operating a cultivation site is pretty straightforward, but the regulations are different in every country and sometimes state to state. So in the U.S., a lot of states are pretty lax. You can almost do anything you want. And there's some states that don't even test the final product before a dispensary buys it or sells it. So that means the grower is free to do whatever they want, which isn't necessarily a good thing. In Canada, when we started uh, the program in 2013, it was very strict. It was very specific what was prohibited and what was not prohibited. And then in places like Colombia, there are no products that are prohibited, but nothing can show up in the final lab analysis uh, prior to selling the material. So that's what keeps it interesting is the growing is pretty straightforward, but the regulations are different. So it really causes you to to think creatively about how are we going to execute this crop. It's interesting and raises a question that I'm curious about since you've worked in a number of other countries uh, in the legal cannabis market in addition to the United States. Uh, by way of comparison, how strict are the regulations in the United States and and how aggressively are they enforced uh, as compared to your experiences in other countries? So generally speaking, I think the rules are more lax and they're less enforced compared to Canada. So in Canada, um, they were very very specific about uh, what products or methods were prohibited in in the process of cultivating cannabis. And we also were subject to uh, frequent unannounced audits from the entity that regulates the cannabis industry. And so these folks would come in roughly once a month and they would have a list of things that they would look at. And so they would wanna look at our standard operating procedures. They would randomly pull one. And then I would need to walk that group to the part of the facility where that activity was taking place. And if my employees weren't performing that task in accordance with the SOP, I was in trouble. 
So we really had to be on point and we had to act like we were being watched at all times because as part of those audits, they would randomly pull security camera footage from a production area. And if they saw anything that was, that wasn't um, correct, you know, we, we, we could be in trouble. So now we, we, we compare that to the U.S. And I've been to some production facilities in Colorado, Arizona, and I was scared to go in there. I mean, I, it's hard to believe that what they're producing is considered medicine because it's just the farthest thing from any kind of quality management system you can imagine. And these folks aren't subject to audits. You know, maybe, maybe their production license is up for renewal once a year, but that doesn't involve anything more than maybe paying some money and, and signing a few pieces of paper. So it's different state to state, and it would be unfair to paint all of the U.S. with that same paintbrush. But generally speaking, it's a little bit more lax here in the U.S. than in Canada. And so let's let's take it to that U.S. level. What's your experience been around the country? Where do you find the states that that, that do tend to be a little more strict in their regulation? If you want to go there, I understand that, uh, you know, to the extent you're comfortable with that. Yeah. So uh, generally speaking, I think the newer – the newer states that are legalizing cannabis are doing so more responsibly and more strict. So you've got a lot more history uh, in California and Colorado. But I mean, just this past November, we've got a number of states that uh, voted to legalize cannabis, either for medicinal or adult use. And so what we can anticipate are uh, pretty strict, straightforward um, rules regarding how these facilities can operate and the standards under which they need to produce their cannabis. So generally speaking, I think it's the newer states are going to be more strict and they'll likely resemble a little closer to what the, the program is like in Canada. Okay. Now, from your perspective, uh, and if you have an opinion, uh, do you see any correlation in the industry, just in the United States for right now, between the the strictness and the aggressiveness with which the regulations are enforced and the quality of the particular marijuana programs? In, in other words, does a level of enforcement like that uh, tend to be beneficial to a, an industry? Does it tend to you know kind of get in the way of the industry? What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's tricky. You know, um, if you look at... Um if you look at drying cannabis as an example, you know, really getting the, the right moisture content in the bud and the right cure goes a long way to affecting the quality of the finished flower. So um, uh, when, when the program began in Canada, in order to, for our product to be released for sale, it had to be within a certain moisture content range, a certain percentage. And so what was acceptable for sale was actually a little bit drier than what the average home grower would want to keep their flowers at. So in order to stay compliant, um, that could be one example of where it negatively affects the quality of the finished flower. So in the U.S., when you don't have as many regulations, you can really get very artisanal about the drying and the curing process. So the the finished flower might test a little high in moisture content, but in my opinion, that's not going to kill anyone. So sometimes those really strict regulations uh, can negatively affect quality. Now, um, just for my next question, when I and I'm a lawyer, so I always do this anyway. When I use a word like sophistication in this context, I'm talking about like a sophisticated wine drinker, right? Somebody who has knowledge of of the the product and what they're doing. Uh, how do you see the U.S. market compared to other markets in terms of the sophistication of the consumer? Are we more of a 
party hardy country where people are just looking for a good buzz as compared to maybe European countries where they're looking for a, uh, a more sophisticated plant? Is it the other way around? Am I just, you know, dreaming about all of this? What's your experience been? So the good news is that there's cannabis consumers worldwide that really appreciate good cannabis. So the difference, in my opinion, is that right now and really for the next two, three, four years, I think the biggest market on the globe for cannabis is the U.S. because you have so many production facilities, you have so many dispensaries, uh, you have so many places where you can buy it. And so that's just not the case in other countries. So even though the market, the demand exists everywhere, it's simply illicit, but the, the demand exists for really high quality cannabis. There's just not the availability today that we have in the U.S. And I mean, even in the U.S. over the next couple of years, I think we can anticipate seeing more and more states legalizing either for medicinal or recreational use. So I think we're I think we're on the brink of a really big boom in cannabis in the U.S. I think it's going to be the hottest market globally for the next few years. Okay. Now, do you think... Um can state, you know, Illinois has been online now medically for God, four or five years in adult use now for one full year. Um, and so certainly the big, you know, time cultivators, the Crescos and all of them in the world have had a chance to really, uh, you know, get going. Do you believe that a state can come online and within a few years create an industry that's capable of cultivating plants, you know, let's say at the quality level of what we're used to getting from California? Or is that something that just has to be developed over time and it's just going to take a few years for people to refine the process and get a few generations in uh, before they can really hit those marks? And I'm not saying that to be critical of Cresco or anybody else. I'm just looking at it more along the lines of, uh, you know, boy, here's something that was grown in the green triangle or at the Emerald Triangle, uh, you know, versus something that was grown, uh, you know, on the south side of Chicago inside a warehouse, um, and, and again, not to say you can't grow good stuff inside, but I think that people, you know, kind of think of California uh, outdoor grown marijuana as being like in a whole separate type of category. And, you know, people are never going to really be able, I don't, I don't think, maybe you think I'm wrong, to really have a, a truly sustained, successful outdoor cultivation in a state like this where half the year it's freezing cold and, you know, and, 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 and you know, not good climate. And so c- can we... Can we look down the road and say, like with the wine industry, okay, we know California's there, but other states over time have developed, you know, reputations for being able to to, to crank out quality grapes. Are we going to see that with marijuana? So absolutely. I mean, what makes quality cannabis really comes down to two things, which is the genetics, so the variety, and the grower. So uh, a big um, multi-state operator could make the same mistakes as a small craft grower in terms of selecting the wrong genetics to grow and sell or hiring the wrong grower to manage the program. So I think we would want to look on a, on a, on a case by case basis by the company that's growing, but absolutely it's possible in a very short time for an individual state to develop a a booming economy for either medicinal or adult use cannabis. Absolutely. I had a few questions. So yes, Ryan, um, along the lines of what Larry was, and you were talking about, what are some of the um, things the U.S. market can learn from the mistakes that were made up in Canada? Because you know, my understanding is Canada is really suffering from overproduction of cannabis. Yeah. So um, 
So I've, I haven't been in Canada since 2016. So I haven't tried any product from the, either the big or the small growers in Canada. But when we, when we think about oversupply, we've also got to look at the other end of that, which is the retail outlets. So what I've heard over the last few years is that there's not that many retail outlets in Canada. So if that's the case, then that could be part of the oversupply problem. So instead of really blaming the growers for growing too much, I mean, we could kind of kind of share the responsibility and say maybe the government uh, had a responsibility um, to really establish more retail outlets so more people could buy the cannabis that's being consumed. But when we, when we flip and look to the U.S., um, you know, every time a state legalizes cannabis for adult use, the exact same thing happens is on the very first day of sales, you see lines around the block of these dispensaries that are selling. And they usually have to limit the amount of product they can sell to consumers. And inevitably, they sell out within like the first two or three weeks. And sometimes they have to close down and they only open their shop for three days a week until the capacity builds up. So I think the situation in the U.S. is a little bit different. The demand is definitely there. But, uh, you know, the first year or two years of an adult use market are often the most lucrative. So those companies that can manage to to come to market quickly, to expand their cultivation facility and meet that demand that's there, they're going to do really well. And in those situations, everyone's everyone wins because the business is bringing in revenue and the consumer has a place to go to purchase what it is they want to consume. So it's kind of a win win for both parties. Very good. And. Can you just, for our listeners, tell us the name of your book again? Sure. It's called From Seed to Success, How to Launch a Great Cannabis Cultivation Business in Record Time. So what are the mistakes to avoid then if you are um, thinking about doing a, um, say, you're starting to build a 100,000 square foot cultivation from scratch? Sure. So probably the, the top three, I like to think of them as the three G's. It's an easy way to remember it genetics, grower, and greenhouse. So one of the most common mistakes I see new cultivation businesses make is they, they launch their facility using too many genetics. So we all like variety, and when you go into a dispensary, there's oftentimes dozens of different flower varieties to choose from, but there's very few skilled growers that can manage more than eight or 10 varieties at one time on a commercial scale, especially in a startup setting. It's very complicated because you've got a brand new facility, you've got a brand new grower, you've got brand new regulations, and startups generally aren't very pretty, so there's a lot of stuff that goes wrong. And so in that scenario, it's almost impossible to manage too many varieties. And I've had clients in Colombia that wanted to start with upwards of 50 varieties in their very first year of cultivation. And so that's, that is almost impossible. So uh, the first mistake to avoid is too many genetics. I tell companies start with maybe five or eight, a maximum of 10, because if you can't successfully launch your company and grow five varieties, you'll never do it with 50. So uh, the second mistake to avoid is hiring the wrong grower. Oftentimes um, people hire for cannabis knowledge, but not plant production experience. And so the difference is if you hire someone that knows a lot about cannabis, that's really a cannabis aficionado, someone that knows a lot about varieties and consuming cannabis, they know a lot about the plant, but what they sometimes lack due to lack of experience is um, production planning skills, facility management skills, and people management skills. And those are just as important as cannabis knowledge when you're working on a commercial scale facility. So um, minimize the genetics, hire a really good grower, and then the last one is the greenhouse or the indoor facility. 
and these really need to be designed by someone with experience, by experts. So what I've seen happen with clients is that they try to save money by designing these production facilities in-house, right? I mean, how hard can it be to design an indoor facility? You hang a light and you got some, some plants under it and there's your indoor facility. But what happens is these folks save a lot of money on the front end because they're not hiring engineers or experts to design it. But then whatever money they save, they end up spending 50 times that over the next couple of years, retrofitting all of the problems in the original design. So when you think about the most common mistakes to avoid, an easy way to think about that is the three G's, the genetics, the grower, and the greenhouse. Well, thank you. That's very informative. Um, Ryan, let me ask you this. Uh, let's, let's pivot towards Ryan Douglas cultivation because now this is you going out on your own. Tell us a little bit about this. When did this begin and, and what kind of gave you the inspiration to go start it? Sure. So after about three years at uh, Canopy Growth Corporation, I knew that all of the lessons that I learned and the mistakes I made and the successes I had would be very valuable to other companies that were about to do what we had just done at Canopy, which was launch a commercial cultivation site in a newly regulated environment. So I decided to go out on my own and really specialize on working with startups in newly regulated environments. So uh, one of my first clients was in Puerto Rico, and I worked with, I think it was the first um, cultivation facility to get licensed in Puerto Rico. And I helped them with everything from design to genetics acquisition to training their employees. And then from that, I moved down to Colombia. And I've really been working with a number of companies in Colombia to do exactly the same thing. Identify appropriate land, uh, design the production facility acquire the genetics and help them find the right head grower for their project. So that's really the kind of work that I've been doing over the last four or five years as an independent consultant. Have you worked with um, smaller players like the types of folks, not not the Crescos of the world, but the, uh, the smaller groups, individuals or small groups of people that are applying for cultivation licenses? Do you work with groups that small? Yeah, absolutely. I've had uh, that type of client in Canada and in Colombia as well. Okay. Very nice. And Ryan, um, t tell us what's going on in Colombia. It's a, it's a medical model. There's no flower. Is that correct? Correct. So um, they have a commercial licensing program. So growers are allowed to export product that can only be destined for medicinal markets. And it has to be um, in some kind of extracted form. So no, uh, no dried flower and nothing that's destined for a recreational market. And what is the illicit market like in Colombia? And, and is it dangerous with the, um, the um, gangs and the cartels? So, um, so cannabis, in my perspective, isn't one of the things that fuels the cartels or the guerrilla movement in Colombia. It's other things, different drugs. Uh, but cannabis is really very, um, it's really pretty benign. I mean, it's, it's really common. It's really easy to grow and it's very inexpensive. So if you buy uh, cannabis on the street, it's about uh, uh, 60 cents a gram or less. Wow. Wow. So not very expensive. And the conditions here are perfect for, for growing. So a lot of people have it growing on their balconies or in their backyard. Uh, it's a very <laughs> agricultural country so um, it's a great place to grow a lot of crops and cannabis is one of them so it's not uh, it, it's it doesn't have the taboo as some other countries might have it's it's pretty common so are you saying that the uh, prohibition laws on cannabis in Colombia are not enforced 
Um, so there's uh, trying to think it's about up to 20 grams that you can have on your person. And even the harder drugs, there's a, a certain amount of personal use that's allotted. So um, they're really not enforcing small quantities, but I mean, you can't, you can't fill up a suitcase and fly around the country. Gotcha. Gotcha. Hey, Ryan, have you had any uh, experience with any companies uh, based out of the Middle East or Israel or that part of the world? Uh, no, no, not yet. I would love to work on a project there. Okay. Very good. Can you tell us, we're going to switch over and talk a little bit about music, uh, but before we do, um, two things. Can you uh, tell our audience where they can get a hold of your book? Because I, I certainly would like a copy. And uh, we'll turn it over to Larry to see if he had any more questions. Yeah, well, uh, certainly we'll find out about your book, uh, 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 email address or a web page where people can go to get in touch with you. And, um, uh, or, you know, can people reach out to you and ask initial questions and that kind of stuff, you know, as a, as a preliminary before signing an agreement with you? Yeah, absolutely. So the best way to get uh, in contact with me is through my website at douglascultivation.com. Uh, you're uh, welcome to shoot me an email or give me a phone call. And in the next few weeks, I'll have uh, a page set up where you can purchase my book. But for right now, it's only available on Amazon. So that's both the uh, paperback and the ebook version. And if you just Google from seed to success, uh, it'll come up pretty quickly. Cool. Very nice. Well, that's exciting stuff, man. Uh, Ryan Douglas of Ryan Douglas Cultivation, a world-class cultivator. Thank you so much uh, uh, for taking the time to answer our questions today. Um, uh, we are getting to that point in the show where Jim likes to start talking about music. So uh, even when he's in Mexico having a good time, I like to keep him happy. Uh, so, so Ryan, we'll ask you the, the question that, of course, our our audience is really waiting to hear, and that is, uh, how many Grateful Dead shows have you seen? <laughs> uh, so probably two. I saw the Jerry Garcia band in my home state of Maine, and I oh. went to see them in uh, New York, I believe. So I was oh. 18 at the time. That would have been uh, 1994. I forget, oh. forget exactly where it was, but uh, that was a fascinating show. Okay, so you've seen them. So, you, so you, at least you have that connection. Very good. Yeah. Um, it, you know, we've always liked them. You know, the music and uh, one of the things that Jim and I always get back to, though, that that you know really separates them, and you know, maybe from any other band except perhaps Fish, because they kind of encourage the same thing, is this sense of community where you can go around and you can be with people before the show, after the show, in the parking lot. Um, and one of the the features of a good dead show is. You can bring good weed and make a lot of friends, or you don't have to bring any weed and still make a lot of good friends. And, uh, you know, uh, back in the day, you know, for my buddies uh, in Ann Arbor and other places who were dabbling in the cultivation, the art of cultivation, and, you know, really wondering whether they were successful, there was no better way to determine than, you know, to bring an ounce or two with you, go on tour with the dead and, you know, judge what kind of reactions you got from the deadheads. Um, you know, and for some people, I guess that could make or break their career in that regard, although deadheads probably tend to be a little bit too discriminating, um, even if they don't always know what they're talking about. But uh, they, they certainly try, um, you know, for every time you go to a dead show and you find a deadhead, he goes, oh, you think your stuff is good, man. Try mine. Mine's the best stuff ever. And, you know, it, 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 it keeps keep people moving and, 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 uh, and having some fun. What music do you listen to? Oh, I like a little bit of everything. I mean, I love The Grateful Dead. Since I'm a smoker, I like reggae music a lot. Okay. Uh, I've spent five years in Colombia, so now I listen to a lot of uh, salsa and reggaeton. 
Um, Excellent. When I'm writing or studying, I like classical music. I mean, even when I'm driving through the country in, in Maine in the summertime, I like country music. So I'm pretty easy to please. Okay, well, that's a, an all-around country, uh, all-around music kind of guy. There's nothing wrong with that. Just appreciate the music that you're listening to at any given time. Yeah. Yes. Um, do you remember where you saw the Jerry Garcia Band in Maine? Uh, yeah, that was at the Portland Civic Center in Portland, Maine. Okay. I went to a fabulous Grateful Dead concert in Lewiston, Maine. I believe it was in 1980. Wow. And, uh, it, was a it was a great long show. And uh, one of the things I remember about it is there was a pretty long set break and there was these guys that opened up their van and they were a tattoo, a, a mobile tattoo parlor and people <laughs> were lined up to get tattoos. You could have your Grateful Dead steal your face tattoo in time for the second set. <laughs> hey, Jim, Lewiston, isn't that where uh, Muhammad Ali beat Sonny Liston back in the day? It could be. Okay, I'm wondering if you didn't just wind up walking into the same darn arena where that happened. But Ryan, um, it was at the uh, the fairgrounds. Oh, at the fairgrounds. Okay. The okay. Cool. Very nice. So a, a, a nice day when you could be outside and enjoy yourself. Yes. Well, That's one comment nice. I would make is that um, I would certainly come back here to uh, the Yucatan Peninsula to see Dead and Company if they do it again in uh, 2022. Oh, playing That's in the sand. Yes, it's a beautiful environment. Um, Are you at the place where they play when they when they do it? I don't know. The um, from the airport you fly into Cancun, mm -hmm. and then it's an hour south along the Caribbean coastline, mm -hmm. and it's it's lined with resorts, gated resorts. You know, pretty heavy security get through the gate, mm -hmm. um, but there's just resort after resort. And what I've learned being here is that. 20 or 25 years ago, this part of Mexico didn't even have electricity. So all this has been built up in the last 20, 25 years. Okay. That's incredible. Yeah, well, there's all sorts of places down there where, you know, my wife and I went to Cabo 25 years ago and it was, you know, a, a ghost town compared to what it is today. And uh, my father had a timeshare in Puerto Vallarta and uh, Nuevo Vallarta that we went to for years and years. And you could just see how quickly things were uh, transforming. And Mexico is going to be an interesting place because they've gone legal now too. Well, that's not exactly true. No? Um, okay. I thought, I thought that was true. Um, I guess it's in the works, but it hasn't happened yet. Ryan, ah. do you have any insight on that? I believe they've delayed a decision until April of this year. But okay. um, the guys down at the beach with backpacks, um, walking back and forth, they're selling Cuban cigars, which I mm -hmm. bought some, and um, fairly expensive starting price. Um, they're selling ace of an ounce of uh, illicit market cannabis for $70. Oh, wow. And I said, I said, really? Our ace in Colorado are $20. And there's also plenty of Yayo for sale. Um, I've stayed away from those just because I'm a little paranoid doing drugs in a foreign country. Understood. The Mexican jails are nothing that you want to be involved with. I would agree with that completely. Um, you know, and seventy dollars, I guess, seems a little bit steep. But you know, I guess when you're when you're in their country, you got to play by their rules, huh? Yeah, but uh, yeah, I believe that's the um, Spanish word for cocaine is yayo. Ryan, can you confirm that? If you know, <laughs> not, not that you would necessarily. Nope. Uh, I, I'm not familiar with that, but it could very well. Here, I, uh, 
no comment. Oh, yes, it is. I'm Googling it right now. And under uh, dictionary.com, it is Spanish slang, Spanish slang for cocaine. And I don't know what the price is because the conversation didn't get that far. You have to be very firm with these guys. They're very pushy. And you have to let them know firmly that you're not interested. Yes, that's true. From our experiences on the beach in Mexico, it's not unlike driving in New York when they come up and start cleaning your windshield before you have a chance to tell them to get away. And the next thing you know, the guy's handling you for a couple of bucks. So you got to be on your toes no matter where you are. So that's okay. That's all good. This this has been a great show. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We're coming to the end of our time slot. Larry, did you have anything else for today's show? No, Jim, I think that, uh, you know, that this is all good. Um, uh, you know, lots of interesting stuff going on. You know, I don't know if you, did you happen to notice that uh, I was just flipping around and I saw an article online that Steve D'Angelo is out at Harborside. Hmm. Well, that's what very, happens to founders. Yep. I, well, I was very surprised. But, you know, I don't just think of him as like a founder. I mean, I think of him as like a father founder, right? I mean, Harborside was, was really one of the very first ones and, um, you know, the, the, the Angelo brothers have been out there on the front line for a long, long time, but I guess, you know, you're right. You go public, you bring in other people's money and other investors. And the next thing you know, your ideas aren't theirs and you're out the door. Yes. And, um, well, I really like Steve D'Angelo and have met him several times and had great conversations with him. Mm-hmm. I did hear people say that he was not the best person to be the leading face of, for the cannabis industry. So maybe there was some pushback there. Who knows? I, I will defer to the people who knew him best because I've only met him a couple of times myself, found it to be very, very pleasant and nice. But that that hardly puts me in the position to uh, to be a judge on that. So at any rate, thank you again to our guest, uh, Ryan Douglas, for being on our show today. We really appreciate it. Our listeners can go uh, online to our website. and You'll be able to find Ryan's information there. Uh, so you can speak with him and, and uh, look about uh, look into information about possibly buying a copy of his book. Um, and so we do thank you for being on our show, and uh, hopefully we will talk with you again soon. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you guys. It's been real fun. Very good. Great. And Jim, uh, have fun in Mexico, and uh, don't forget your sunscreen. Will do. Ryan, one more time, the name of your book and where they can find it. Uh, from Seed to Success, and you can find it on Amazon. Thank you very much. This is Jim Marty saying over and out from Playa de Carmen, Mexico. And this is Larry Mishkin saying over and out, not from Playa de Carmen in Mexico, unfortunately, uh, but from lovely Chicago, Illinois, where it's dark and it's cold, and I'll just be sitting inside all night. At any rate, uh, thank you all of our listeners for listening today. Thank you to Ryan Douglas. Thank you to Jim for his determination and managing to get on the show and thank you as always to our producer dan hummiston uh to all of our listeners we will see you next week uh enjoy have fun and when you enjoy your cannabis please do so responsibly thank you very much listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows.
Hey friends, I'm Brandon and I'm Saba and we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout podcast, an educational platform to connect with the cannabis community and share personal stories while breaking the stigma of marijuana. Join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. to gain valuable insight with different perspectives from industry leaders, growers, and medical marijuana patients. This is a place to learn so much from different angles in the cannabis industry. So tune in while, while we, we break, break it all down. down.